in many indigenous First Nations Native American societies, there was no hierarchy of human based on skin color. There was no difference between me and a wolf or a pig or a worm. We're all equal. We're all the same. In a lot of indigenous languages, there's no gendered nouns. There's no him, her. Everybody is treated equally as the same. Book Society Podcast, here we are. We have a very distinguished and very special guest today, Dr. Paulette Steves. She is from the Cree Metis Nation. She has a BA in anthropology from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. She has a master's from Sunny Binghamton. I'm just kidding. I know it's SUNY Binghamton. I am also a SUNY alumnus. She also has her PhD from SUNY Binghamton. That's State University of New York for the uninitiated. She was the interim director of UMass Amherst Native American Studies program. She is currently at Algoma University, where she is a tier two Canada research chair in healing and reconciliation. That sounds pretty awesome. She has published one to two major papers for the last 10 or so years. She writes a lot. She thinks a lot. She knows a lot. She wrote a great book called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. And if you are a deep, deep archaeology nerd, you know that that's an extremely controversial title. And if not, it probably just sounds like a bunch of words, but we're going to get into that. She is a BAA, a badass archaeologist, and we are honored to have her on the podcast. The book that Dr. Steves chose today is Joy Harjo's newest book called Poet Warrior. And we've talked about one of Joey Harjo's books on the podcast before. We did an episode of Flynn Coleman about when the light of our world was subdued, our songs came through. And that was the first time I was aware of Joy Harjo. And I actually bought this book at the Miami Book Fair for no reason other than I thought I wanted to read it. And then fortuitously, Dr. Steves decided she wanted to read it. So I already had a copy of it. Dr. Steves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So my first question is, why did you pick this book? Well, I had just received it as a birthday present from a really good friend. And I've always loved Joy Harjo. And she is such an amazing example for all Indigenous youth and for all people. And when you read this book, you will understand what I'm talking about. She's an outstanding, really upbeat, positive scholar. One of the things that stood out to me was I read half the physical book and half the audiobook. And the physical book, the way that it's laid out is it's part poems and it's part prose. And listening to the audiobook, hearing her read it, there's no distinction between the two. She sort of speaks in this prose poetry that is so enchanting. And you've known her work for a long time. She's someone you've been aware of in reading. Yeah. So being an Indigenous student, when I was an undergraduate student, I didn't have a single Native American or First Nations or Indigenous professor. I wasn't given a single Indigenous author paper to read. So those few people that I did know about really gave me hope and really sort of lit the path for me that they got through academia and accomplished these great things. And, you know, it's really important for us to have representatives in academic areas doing well. So she really stood out to me. Yeah, I think this book is a sequel to her first memoir, Crazy Brave. I haven't read Crazy Brave, but it sounds like her life was pretty difficult. Yeah, no, I haven't read Crazy Brave, but reading through this, it really resonated with me how similar our lives are. So I know that a lot of people may not understand it, but when 
a community, and we're talking a huge community, all of the America's Indigenous people go through what is a genocide for 500 years. There isn't one person who isn't touched by trauma or intergenerational trauma. So when we look at the residential schools, they intentionally targeted all First Nations people with the intent of erasing their culture. They did great harm to them. We see the intergenerational trauma over and over and over through numerous generations. But reading her book, oh my God, her story is so similar to mine. And it's a little bit sad, but it's very odd when I meet another First Nations or Native American person who doesn't have a similar story with family dysfunction and violence. These are all products of going through a genocide and having attempts of your culture being erased. Our grandparents and our parents suffered a lot more than we did. And we're kind of in that place of trying to create paths to healing. And a big part of healing is talking a truth about how we got to this place. And so her openness in this book to talk the truth about her family and the dysfunction and all of the issues she went through is really, really important. It's important for people to understand that the majority of First Nations and Native American people face this kind of trauma and intergenerational trauma. But here we are recovering from it, not just recovering, but doing really well. She has done so amazingly well. Of course, that's important for all young people, especially young Indigenous people, to see that we can go through this trauma, we can work towards recovering and healing, and we can do well. But we still have to share our stories and be honest about the truth. Yes, yeah, she is a success story, and I probably should have mentioned this up front, but she is the Poet Laureate of the United States. So it doesn't get much more successful in the world of poetry than that. She's amazingly successful. She's a gifted, talented museum, and you can tell that she takes joy in that. You can just see joy radiating from her when she's sitting there with her instrument and all of her pictures. And that's really a wonderful vision that I hold on to. That's interesting that she's meant so much to you. You're a generation younger than her. Do you think that your generation has benefited from the work that Joy Harjo and people like her have done? And how do you think your life is easier and better? Oh, definitely. They've opened paths. They've shown the world, specifically the world of the Americas, that Indigenous people can go through a genocide. We can face ongoing colonization, but watch us still do well. Not just well, but the best poet in the United States, the Poet Laureate. She is amazing. She talks about a lot of really important issues that I think would resonate with many First Nations and Native American people because she talks about, and I think it's on page 11, everyone needs a place where they feel like they belong. When you've gone through a genocide, like my grandparents were forced to sign script payments in Manitoba and lost all of their homelands. So there goes our homelands, our home community, our links to the land, everything. My mother didn't have a place to belong. I don't have a community on the land and a place to belong, but I have been shown a place in my work and my research and in different Indigenous communities that I'm close to that I definitely belong. That's really important. And it's something that maybe non-Indigenous people will come to understand that our places of belonging are linked to the land. And many of the lands have been stolen from us. And we've been forced to not have links to our homelands, our places where our ancestors and relations lived for so long. 
Before we started recording, you said something to me along the lines of truth tellers get in trouble. I think that's true and beautiful. And I want to touch on something you said. You referenced your grandfather being part of a genocide. For the non-Native people and non-students of Native history, I think that most people think, well, there were Native people here, then Columbus came, and then all the Native people were gone, and British people were here. But there have been Native genocides that have happened very recently, and can you talk about some of those? Well, the residential school system, the government apologized for this, what they called cultural genocide. However, thousands of children died at residential schools. Many were buried in unmarked burials. That's a genocide. That is a physical genocide. So it's well documented, and I know that it hasn't been well taught or discussed. I think we're getting to that place in education. So for people that don't know, there's many documented speeches where they said, Things like we need to kill the Indian and save the child. And the purpose is to annihilate all signs of their culture. So we got to remove them from their parents and their communities, put them in these residential schools and teach them to be civilized. So when children went to residential schools, they were forcefully removed from their families and parents. Some of their parents who wouldn't allow them to take their children ended up dying, going to jail, being charged. So the government just went in and took all the children and sent them to these residential schools, which were not schools. They were asylums of abuse. They were like re-education camps. Right. They weren't allowed to speak their language. They weren't allowed to wear their clothes. They couldn't keep their hair long. And if they were caught speaking their language, they were beaten. Many children suffered sexual abuse, physical abuse. They did experiments on them. It's pretty horrendous. The Canadian government has done some settlements with people that were in residential schools. We had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now they're starting to address settlements for what was called the day schools, which were much the same, but they didn't all have permanent living facilities there. This was the same in the United States. There were residential schools, and the intent was to erase anything Indigenous or Indian from the child and make them a civilized white child to save them. And this is in the 20th century, just to be clear. This isn't ancient history. This is living memory. I think the last one in Canada closed in 1996, maybe. Some of them were open for over 100 years. Well, I just did a database. So I have a website called the Canadian Residential School and Colonial Institutes Database. So what I wanted to do was to create an educational space where people could learn about residential schools. But the government says that they're only responsible from the time that Canada was federated, 1867, or they say 1884. But that's not the truth. The truth is the first residential schools weren't after Canadian Federation. The first one was in Quebec City in 1620. And so you don't have three or four or five even generations of people with intergenerational trauma. You have 18 or 22. So I wanted to put all of the residential schools, Indian day schools and Indian hospitals, which were racially segregated and where people were held for years into one place on a map. I don't have them all, but I have 917 as of this morning. We're just redoing the map and the database to make it easier for people to navigate. But that's a huge impact. That's a huge amount of intergenerational trauma. So the children that went to those schools didn't know how to love. They didn't know how to raise a child. They were torn from their families and suffered horrendous abuse. A lot of them were forced to do forced labor, school part-time. What's the half-life of that kind of trauma? How many generations will it take us 
to heal. Well, the first part we've only just gone through and we're still going through, and that's the truth telling about that event that took over hundreds of years. And you have to tell the truth to be able to start the processes of acknowledgement and healing. So I see what Joy Harjo went through in her life. Mine was much similar in some places, much worse. And I know that it's the same for a lot of other First Nations and Native American people. And that's because of the genocide and ongoing colonization. People talk about post-colonization. In my mind, there's no such thing. We're still going through and trying to change processes of colonization. We'll link to the database you mentioned in the description of the episode, so you can find that and look at that. It's amazing that those schools were open until as recently as 1996. I was in high school in 1996. So someone my age could have graduated from one of those schools, or if you want to call it graduating, could have endured one of those schools. Let me share one more thing about Joy Harjo's book. So she teaches a lot of lessons in telling her story in that book. And one that for some reason, I didn't see other people experiencing this, but now I realize that a lot of Indigenous people must have. Our ancestors grew up listening to the land, to the animals, to the trees, to the grass, to the water, to the winds, to the stars. Everything had a spirit. Everything had a purpose, a reason, an intelligent. And Joy Harjo talks about listening in her book. I think it's on page 14. So I grew up in a non-Indigenous world and my mom, we had to hide our identity. She had lost two children in the 40s to the government, took them away and we never could find them. So we weren't allowed to say we were cremati. We had to hide that to be safe. I grew up in these non-Indigenous worlds where you're taught that if you listen to dreams or anything else, you're crazy, right? I had to reteach myself and thank God, I think it was in my blood and my heart that it came back quite easily. But I had to teach myself to pay attention and listen to the spirits that were there, to my dreams, to the messages from ancestors, to everything on the land. And I had to really work at that. As a grad student, I'd go out to archaeology sites and I just sit there and I listen and I'd listen to thoughts that came to mind. And Joe Harjo talks about that, learning to listen. So that's one of the things that we're reclaiming that I think we really get a lot of strength from and a lot of guidance from. She speaks to her ancestors, and there's all these moments in the book that seem natural to her, but seemed very strange and otherworldly to me. And I wondered if you were reading into some of those things differently than I was, and it seems like you were. But the interesting thing is that you took away largely the same thing that I took away from it, which is that there are these modes of understanding that are different than what we've been taught. You have learned them and I'm learning them. She also speaks a lot about her language and you speak some native languages. Yeah. No, not really. Just a few words here and there. I would love to learn my own Cree language. I try to incorporate things into my classes. I teach like maps that are all labeled with indigenous languages. I think it's very important for students and people to understand more than half of the language families in the world come from the Americas, North and South America. California alone had 15 language families. That's probably double what Europe had double or triple. And so there was an amazing, amazing diversity of people on these lands. And so when we're looking into discussing their histories, I challenge archaeologists to, if you're working with the Navajo, go learn the Navajo language. How do you understand a person's story if you don't understand their language? Go learn the Navajo language and listen to their stories in their language. That's really important. And there's very few schools that offer any Native American or First Nations languages. There's getting to be more in Canada that have Cree and Anishinaabe 
you know, if there's a school, a university in Arizona near the Navajo, they should teach the Navajo language. They should teach all the languages of the indigenous people in that area and help to recover and revive them also. This is something that I've been learning slowly over many years from Teokasin. He and I talk a lot about his language and he speaks Lakota and a few things that he has told me about it. One, that you can't learn it off of the land. You have to be on the land in order to learn it. He tells me that English is a prison and I will never understand anything until I can speak his language, which I never will, which I think he says a little bit as a joke, but also as a little bit of truth. And that his language has no nouns, which there's an interesting parallel in this book when Joy Harjo talks about her relationship with Meridel Lassour, who is a native novelist who's a generation older than her, who she had a relationship with. And the last thing she says about Meridel Lassour is that she died working on a novel that had no nouns. There's so many differences. So in many indigenous First Nations, Native American societies, there was no hierarchy of human based on skin color. There was no difference between me and a wolf or a pig or a worm. We're all equal. We're all the same. In a lot of indigenous languages, there's no gendered nouns. There's no him, her. Everybody is treated equally as the same. When you think that way, it really opens up your worldview. It opens up your heart like we're all equal. And it really irks me when I go to a meeting and some faculty are bowing down to the president or some honored person. I'm like, why do you do that? You are all equal. Like, I don't give anyone those, I call them fake platitudes because I want them to like me or approve my project. Like me or don't like me. This is what I do. I see so much wasted energy. It never comes across as sincere. I always know the person is doing that for a reason. Just quit and come in a circle. We're all equal, you know? That's really hard to change in the academy is to get people to understand that we all sit around the same fire. We're all equal. Even in the Indigenous world, there's always people that are power players or they're playing to gain more favor or power. And it's nice to step out of academia and just go in the forest and sit there with the trees and whatever animals or birds or fish are around and just breathe that calmness of we're all equal. I have two things to say about that. On the one hand, I totally agree with you. I think that I try to, as a baseline, treat every person I meet the same and treat them with dignity and respect, unless they prove that they're unworthy of those things, which I think almost everyone is worthy of them. But on the other hand, in the world of academia, the world that you inhabit and that I dip my toe into, there are some accolades that you, Dr. Steves, have achieved that I should rightly praise you for. That is the world we live in. Now, it is a logical fallacy for me to assume that because you're right about some things, you're right about everything. I would be remiss to decline to argue with you about something that I disagreed with. But I think it's important to accord people who have done a lot of work a little bit of respect for that work. Joy Harjo, I definitely give her a lot of respect. So there are some differences, but it's just that everyday play you see where you see people that maybe are dishonest or they don't follow Pimatsuin to live a good life. They don't follow the seven grandfather teachings, you know, of respect and humility and love. And I think people that do great things like Joy Harjo and Vine Deloria Jr., they do deserve a lot of respect, but I still treat them all the same. <laughs> yeah. And I think another interesting thing that you touched on there was that the respect is not just for human beings. It's for all of creation and all of the animals. 
We've spoken about Joy Harjo's book. We're going to make the transition and move into talking about what I've wanted to talk about now for months, which is your book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. I have a relationship that I'm very proud of with a ground squirrel who suns himself on a rock outside of my window every morning. And sometimes I'll throw him nuts. I like him. He's doing his thing. I don't know what the rest of his life is like, but every morning we sort of see each other and it's nice. I hope he stays away from the coyotes, but if not, you know, I'd like the coyotes too. (laughs) 